Imagine having the life of your dreams. Not temporary cash and glory, but happiness and inner peace. Explore new ways to be a creator and take your own journey into greatness. Is it possible? What does it take to make that happen? It takes the person known for extreme results. He's called the cage breaker and the ultimate catalyst. Coming back from the brink of death and now crushing it for himself and his clients, this is your Ultimate Life Podcast with Kellen Flukiger. Hi there and welcome to this episode of Your Ultimate Life. We're kind of deep in the middle of what to me obviously is an exciting story. And I hope to you too because while it's a story about something that happened to me, the things that I learned and I'm sharing with you might might be of help to you. So this is the fourth of six episodes that describe in detail what happened um, when I had the death experience in June of 2018. Um, so where, where I left it before was at the end of the third conversation, the last conversation. But that wasn't the end of the experience by any means, because it went on. I, I was in the hospital just about a month. And 17 days of that, I was in a coma. And the first three of those 17 days, um, according to my knowledge, it was these visits that I just talked to you about. So that would have been the 6th, 7th, and 8th of June. And um, somewhere, the first day that I remember the date, <clears throat> it was the 24th of June. So that would have been 16 days later, which would have been 19 days. But Joy tells me I, I was in a coma for 17 days or 18, 17, I think. Anyway, um, so after those three conversations with God that I described, I don't remember anything from the coma. Don't remember anything from that experience. What I do remember is finally waking up. And today's episode 702, I'm calling Waking Up and Being Shaken Up. So I remember coming to, barely, and that happened in stages. There was lots of unconscious time, even after I wasn't in a coma, and they were asking, every day they would ask me, you know, what day is it? <clears throat> to try to see if I was, you know, present at all and was okay after such a time being in a coma. And I, I could tell my body was really, really weak. It's hard to move. Everything was painful. And I had no idea how bad, how bad it was <clears throat> until later. So there were two, two things. One, I, I felt incredibly isolated and alone. I had felt, I'd had those extraordinary experiences, and the first thing I remember doing when I, when I came to was wanting to talk about that, because my recollection of the, the third conversation until the time I regained consciousness was nothing but repeating the things that I had experienced. So the 
book of context, the framework that I got in the second conversation about how to change beliefs. The answer to my question, why do we settle for crumbs? Because you don't believe. What can I do about that? Glad you asked. You know, that kind of setup. And then what came after that was uh, an entire framework that I wrote in a second book. I wrote the book Meeting God at the Door that I told you about. And then I wrote a second book that was with it called The Book of Context. So the book of context contains the framework that I got in the second conversation. And I didn't include it in the first book because that's really a, a teaching book. It was given to me to use in my coaching and to help with it. And so I wrote it, but it, it was just too long and it was its own book. And so that's why it's in a second book. It's called the book of context, referring to the context straitjacket that we live in how we define how life works and we limit ourselves because of that. So what I want to do now is talk about what I remember of being still in the ICU and still in biological isolation, although they had figured out what I had. Um, and so I was still wired up. And one of the things I remember is um, the needles the needles all the time needles they had put so many needles in my veins that they had begun to collapse my veins had begun to collapse and they were looking always for other places to put needles the antibiotics were so strong and powerful that that they were damaging my veins and i didn't even really understand any of that until much later but anyway what i remember is uh, the hallucinations. I started having hallucinations. Now, one of the things that I thought about when I talked about these hallucinations, what I thought, well, if I talk about the hallucinations that I had, then people are going to think that my visits with God were hallucinations. And they're not. And here's how I know. The visits with God were organized. They were orderly. They were light-filled. There was nothing except love and acceptance in that whole thing. And it was genuine dialogue and questions. There was power, like I can't describe, infinite power of the divine. And it was clear that when I asked, when I was asked the question, do you want to come home in the very first conversation, the power was there to cause the answer to happen either way. No, there was no question about that, right? The hallucinations I had later were dark. They were terrifying. They were not anything but clear. I couldn't understand the meaning or the feelings, and I'm, I'm going to talk about a number of them. <clears throat> uh, I hallucinated having conversations with unknown entities and trying to get healing things in the room and I was negotiating with someone to miss the room full of healing uh, uh, chemicals, healing naturopathic stuff and, you know, crazy stuff. In fact, it was so fun, funny and real to me and funny to Joy because she, one of the things I tried to do was to get her to go home and pay a PayPal invoice <laughs> because I had negotiated with an unseen provider of mystical elements in the room, in the mist in the room to heal me. And often the room seemed foggy, right? Even though it wasn't. 
And uh, I had ordered a certain cocktail of healing elements. And I told him to send the PayPal invoice and told her she needed to go pay this PayPal invoice right away. She came back the next day and told me there was no invoice. And, you know, they were very real to me and I insisted on the reality, but they were all dark and scary. I had one terrifying hallucination where I was in snow outside. Now it's summertime in Edmonton. It does snow a lot here and it is very cold, but it was summer. And but any, I was I was caught in the snow and I was naked and I was going to freeze to death. I, I knew I was in the hospital, but somehow I was moved into a area that was outside that was still in the hospital. And the person who was helping me, I had seen over there and then they left the room and I was going to freeze to death in the snow because I couldn't get inside. And so... There were endless, endless, endless hallucinations, all of them fear-based. I I had a hallucination that there were cameras that came down from the ceiling on these little tiny thin fiber, like fiber optic, thin, thin fiber things in the end of like you see in science fiction or in spy movies with a little tiny glow light on the end, and they were spying on me, and I could see them coming out of the walls and you know, just that went on and it made it made it scary so every time joy came and i think i got out of the icu which i'll talk about later but around um the 26th or so so that would have been 17 from 5 is 22 so i this is about 5 or 6 days now i got out on the 20 Eighth, I think so about six or seven days that I was conscious in the ICU after the coma and these visions were terrifying they were frightening they were threatening they were conspiracy laden I was telling Joy to go home and hide this and search the house and I had visions of movies. I had watched an entire movie in my mind that I have since searched for and can't find it. So I don't think it's even a real movie, but it was very involved in detail and it involved a lot of skullduggery and people lying and cheating and blowing up houses and just negative stuff. So the big difference between the visits with God was they were informative, they were powerful, they were uplifting, they were white, they were glorious, they were helpful, they were kind, and they were full of love. They were very limited and clear, and all the rest of this was this vague, amorphous, in and out of consciousness, foggy stuff that was horrifying, horrifying. And so that is how you know the difference between something that is of the divine and either of yourself or of whatever negative forces there are, if you want to call them devils or adversaries or, you know, demons or something, those forces don't lift and build and bless. They don't give you confidence and capability. They are confusing. They are fearful and all the rest. So that permeated the entire perhaps eight days that I was in the ICU still and awake. Then, and then the physical part, the, the nights were interminable. I, this is when they were worst. I, I couldn't sleep very well. 
And those of you that have spent a lot of time in the hospital know how that is. I couldn't sleep very well, even though I was laying in bed and I was drugged up like crazy. And I found out later one of the drugs they gave me was ketamine, which is a hallucinogen. It's an animal tranquilizer, and it's also a party drug. And it had been part of my ritual of drugs back in the days when I was addicted in many years before, 11 years before, actually, this was in 18. And my, that my, my infatuation with substances ended in 2007, which was 11 years earlier. But anyway, uh, so of course I was hallucinating. Now the physical part. So I woke up, uh, as I woke up, one of the first things they were trying to do is to get me to start getting strength back. And this is when I realized how bad my body had deteriorated. Uh, I found out later when I got out of the hospital that I'd lost 35 pounds, uh, 35 pounds in a month. And everything is atrophied. I was so weak. I, the first time they asked me to sit up, I, I barely could sit up and then get, try to get out of bed. I couldn't. I, I phys- My arms worked, but my legs didn't. I had to physically grab my legs and move them over the side of the bed. <clears throat> the physical therapist came every day, as well as the occupational therapist and a respiratory therapist and all these people because they're trying to get me healed. I mean, I didn't die. They didn't know it, but it was by choice. And now there's healing trying to go on, but I couldn't walk. The first thing I had to do was stand up and they they brought in something that looked like a, I describe it as a tackling dummy. It was a very big base. It was on wheels and it had a center pillar piece that was about neck high, but it was heavy. And so I could hold on to that and clutch and hold myself upright. That was hard. That was so hard to start with. Just standing and holding that thing being upright was completely overwhelming. So I stood there for maybe 30 seconds or maybe a minute or maybe two minutes the first day. And then that was it. The next day I, I, I was able to shuffle around the room uh, just a little tiny bit. And then, then the main torture started because uh, I, then they, uh, Joy was there trying to help me also, of course. And then they had me sit down. Now, they I had a TV in the room, and Joy had watched that all the days and days and days that she'd sat there while I was unconscious. And uh, there was TV on, so she said, sit with me and watch TV. And I had never realized sitting was so painful. The act of sitting upright changed, of course, how all the organs are functioning in your body and blood flow and everything else. So it was extremely difficult. And they said, well, sit 10 minutes. And I thought, 10 minutes, I can do that. I sat down and in three minutes, I was absolutely screaming in my body to lay down. I didn't scream out loud, but screaming in my body to lay down. So that, that, was, that was horrifying. The next interesting thing that was fun is I wear great big contact lenses. And I say great big because they go clear out to the whites of my eyes. Now, if you're watching the video, you can see how big that is. They cover the iris completely. They're called scleral lenses because the white of your eye is called the sclera. And I wear those because my corneas are messed up and I need them to give shape. And so I can't wear glasses because of messed up corneas. I see like seven ghosts. Uh, I went to church here not recently when... Uh, I was having an allergy attack or an infection in one of the eyes, so I went without contacts. 
uh, in one eye, I, I could wear it in the other. So when I closed the eye with the contact in, I could see the light in the ceiling. When I closed the eye with the contact in and was looking out of the busted eye, I saw seven ghosts. So my cornea was so busted, so wrinkly, that I saw seven ghosts. So that's why you can't wear glasses. So one of the things I desperately wanted to do is put my contact lenses in. So I could see, because without my contacts, I'm blind. 2,500, which is uh, past some definitions of legal blindness. I think it's 2,400 or something like that. But anyway, uh, horribly I can't see. So trying to put these huge lenses in, uh, Joy was trying to help me, was a circus. The first day to put the first lens in, it took a half an hour with me instructing her exactly how I did it and trying to hold my eye, although my arms were shaky and I couldn't put them in because my hands were so wobbly, I couldn't do it, right? So putting the lenses in, it took a half an hour to get the first lens in and 15 minutes to get the second lens in. And then at the end of my day was when the lenses came out because then I was blind again and I felt disconnected. So that was kind of the way I marked days. Lenses go in and of course they didn't come in until Joy got there and she was home and had dogs and cats and other things to do. And she might get there around 10, sometimes nine, but 10. And then put my lenses in and then she would be there for a couple of hours and then go do other stuff because she had, you know, a full slate of things to do besides me. And she'd been there interminable hours while I was in the coma. And now she had business to run. She was running eBay stuff and she was alone. And all the stuff that there was to do in terms of household stuff and keeping the household running and dogs and cats and her mom who uh, lived three blocks from us, we, We'd moved up to Edmonton in 2016, two years before this, to take care of her mom. So we were doing that. And and then on top of that, there was a funeral. Uh, my wife's mother's sister, her aunt, lived in Calgary, which is about a three-hour drive away, and she passed away during this time. And so Joy had uh, also came to see me and then taken her mom and driven to Calgary for the funeral. And so that was a sense of what Joy was doing. Uh, during that time. Eventually, uh, I was able to walk um, around the room, and then I was able to walk the first day. There was such a thing. The idea was to walk down the hall. Now, I was still in biological isolation, but because they knew what I had, it was now safe to let me out in the general population of the ICU, right? I was behind double doors in an isolated room, but now it was okay to let me out because the infection that I had uh, was contained. And I found out later what that was, but it was contained enough that I could be allowed out in the rest of the ICU. And the reason they would do that is they wanted me to walk further than just a little circle around the room clutching my tackling dummy, although it didn't have a face or anything. So then they opened the door, and I remember the day, this was a big celebration day, out the door, and then maybe 15 feet to the left, and then turn left again, and there was a long hallway. Long is relative, right? A hallway that led by several other ICU uh, 
cubicles, although most of them were not the double door isolation chambers. They were just ICU areas and some of them were rooms. But anyway, to walk past those, the first day I walked maybe a third of the way out the door and a third of the way down that hall. And then I came back gasping for air. And then they wanted me to sit up for 10 minutes. That was really, really difficult. But the whole point, of course, was to get me, get me going and to wake up again. Now, the reason I tell you all this detail is not to say poor me. Some people find it interesting. And if you don't, I'm sorry, then you can not listen to it. The important part is every single person has tremendous challenges. So do you. And we're talking here about how to create your ultimate life, a life of purpose, prosperity, and joy. Well, in order to do that, you need to get past whatever challenges are on your plate. And get past doesn't mean furiously fight and be angry about them. It doesn't mean rail against how come I'm sick? How come the weather's bad? How come the economy? How come my partner left me? How come my business partner hosed me, screwed me over and robbed me? How come I got mugged? How come I got hit in a car accident? How come some drunk ran over somebody close to me? If we rail about whatever is smashed in our face from externalities, it's it's impossible to get past them and to live that ultimate life. The truth is we don't control externalities. And every energy we spend railing against them robs us of living that life of enjoyment. Now, you might say, how can you possibly enjoy life when tough things are happening? Whatever the level of tough things, flat tire on the way to work to a drunk kills one of your loved ones, you know, full spectrum, or your business crashes and you go bankrupt, or how can I live an ultimate life? Well, the answer is you can. You can live an ultimate life even then. And, and the choice is how you look at those things. If you take the, the view that everything happens to give us experience and we're just here to have and, and embrace those experiences, then it's possible to have that life of joy, even in the midst of, because the experiences are interesting. Wow, I'm having this experience. I'll talk more about that later as we go along, but that is a pivotal difference. If I resign, if I'm resigned and I go through these terrible things, who says they're even terrible? Like, what if they're not? What if they're just experiences and my body hurt? Like crazy, I could barely walk and I was begging to get in bed. But me, the essence that's me, that's that's way down in here. I'm not my body and neither are you. You're that, you're that intelligence that's seeing or experiencing the body. You're watching the body. Wow, the body is really struggling. Or if you're hurt and you're sad, mm, my heart is really heavy and sad. But you, the intelligent essence, the spirit, the thing that came from above, that isn't you. The sadness isn't you. The body isn't you. And that is what allows us, me and you both, to live a life of happiness because we said so. Literally because we said so. Because if we wait to be happy until we 
are somehow able to control everything in our body and everything around us and order things according to our will, we're going to be waiting forever because we don't control 99% of that. We control what we choose to dwell on and think. We can choose how we feel by choosing what we think, and we can choose what we do, but that's it. And that learning to me was really powerful and brought home. And that's how, even in those circumstances, as I describe you these maybe gory details, you can live that ultimate life, even in the midst of dying or life-threatening illness. And unbeknownst to me, Joy was scrambling. You know, she was scrambling to run business and to get stuff on eBay and to, you know, continue creating things that she wanted to do. And yet she was down there helping me. and She didn't burden me with any of that during the time. And I didn't even find out all the details until as the years have gone by, I found out more and more of the details of what was going on. I think she did tell me about driving to the funeral while I was there, but I barely remember that. So eventually, uh, I walked all the way out of the room and down the hall to the end and then back. And I had to pause two or three times to rest. That was a big celebration. That was a big celebration. And they were trying to figure out when they were going to let me out of the ICU and put me in the regular part of the hospital. That was the next milestone. Now that I chose to live and the infection, that was number one. Number two, the infection rate was down enough that I wasn't going to be a danger to others. Uh, if, then, you know, the next thing is, can you go out of the intensive care? So the keys for that were oxygen, because I was still breathing with oxygen, because my O2 saturation was too low. And I couldn't, you know, move enough to be out in gen pop in, in a regular room. So that was what I was focused on. And everything was just focused on the present, here and now. What am I doing right now? And so you've all heard the term live in the now. Well, there, you know, when you have a situation like that or some situation in your life that is clear and present and demands all your attention and focus, you have to live in the now. Because what went on before doesn't even matter and what's coming may not ever come. Right now is all you have. The truth, that's how life is all the time. Right now is all all of us ever have. And yet we spend so much time living some when else in our minds, regretting or frustrated about something that did happen or worrying about trying to force what's coming to be a certain way. And we miss our life. We, we give away our life because we're living everywhere but here and now. So that was really a, a learning for me too. So two big learnings, focusing on the now, learning what that actually meant, and two, realizing that I can be happy here and now because I said so. And it was a struggle because in between all those hallucinations, which were daily and the threats, and I felt threatened and I saw cameras and I had just all kinds of crazy things about life being threatened and, you know, nurses not being nice, even though they were, I know they were, it was, uh, it was just terrifying. Now, eventually, <clears throat> right after they were, had been feeding me intravenously and they wanted to use a feeding tube 
I'd never had a feeding tube before, and that to me was a very difficult thing. And the first time they tried to get it in, I, I tried hard to cooperate, but I couldn't, and it hurt. And I felt like the nurse was unkind, and I broke down, and I said, I'm trying to cooperate. You're not nice. And I got really frustrated about that. And so then that nurse left, and later another one came in, and we tried again and was successful and felt really bad because I had gotten angry. It was more frustrated than angry because I was trying so hard to do what they were asking me to do because it goes up your nose and then down your throat and you have to swallow at just the right time because they want to get it clear down in your stomach. Wow. Eventually, they got it in there. But regardless of having a feeding tube now, I was hungry. So we'll tell more about that later. But finally, I was able to walk down the hall again and all the way back to my room might have been a distance of 60 feet, 10 feet out of the room, 25 or so feet down the hall. No, it was probably more like 40 because there were four. Yeah, so 40 feet, 40 feet back and 10 again, probably 100 feet. That was the biggest celebration. That was the biggest celebration. So getting that much physical activity in that I could walk that far with a tackling dummy and then back to my room, stay sitting upright and getting the feeding tube down my throat. That combined with finding out what the infection was, which I'll tell you in the next episode because there's some story around that. And... Uh, getting the feeding tube in and finding, you know, making sure I wasn't going to kill anybody with my infection. That was enough to bring on the day when it was going to be time to get me out of this ICU. What's important here is the learnings. You can be joyful in the midst of terrible, terrible, life-threatening affliction that is in fact life-threatening because it did kill me. No matter what's going on, how persecuted and weak you feel and actually are, you can choose to have happiness. And the only place we actually live is in this moment here. Those were some things that were really important that taught me about living this life of purpose, prosperity, and joy. Because that's the life you deserve, no matter what's going on around you. You may or may not be facing some terrible uh, health crisis or financial crisis or personal dark night of the soul right now. But regardless, you can live that ultimate life. That's why after leaving this event behind and recovering, my whole purpose is to help 10 million people this year in 2022 to discover develop and serve with their divine gifts to help people like you live their ultimate life today, not someday out in the future. I know you can. If there's anything that I can do to help, I invite you to talk to me. Let me help you create your ultimate life. Open your heart in this time Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope that you take it deeply into your heart and decide for yourself how you can create anything you desire. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends. 
As always, we'd love to hear your feedback and topic suggestions. Until tomorrow, this is Your Ultimate Life with host Kellen Flukiger. And your feet on the ground.